Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK, coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, Priya Krishna joins us to talk about her new cookbook, Indianish, inspired by the dishes her mom used to make back home in Texas. I did not bring Indian food to school because I was too embarrassed. I made my mom pack me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every single day for the 11 years that I was in school. And looking back, I'm so I feel so bad because my mom would lovingly make all this Indian food and she would pack it for herself and for my dad for work. And yeah, my sister and I just refused. In the early 70s, my grandparents opened a restaurant in San Francisco that the New Yorker called the best Chinese restaurant in the world. Henry's Hunan brought the spicy, rustic cuisine that my family grew up eating in Hunan province to American audiences. There are many fan faves on the menu, silky mapu dofu, hot pepper-flecked fish fillets, but hands down the most popular dish is Diana's meat pie, named after my grandmother. This bastardization of Chinese cuisine consists of spicy ground pork sautéed with onions, topped with shredded iceberg lettuce and Parmesan cheese, sandwiched between two deep-fried flour tortillas. It's not Chinese food, but it's also not not Chinese food, and anyway, who cares? Order two. This type of culinary mashup is familiar to immigrants and their children the world over. It certainly is to writer Priya Krishna, whose new cookbook, Indianish, is an homage to the food she grew up eating as a kid in Texas. Her mother, Ritu, pulled from the memories of the dishes she ate in India and adapted them to work with whatever ingredients were readily available in Dallas. The resulting recipes, sog paneer with feta, roti pizza, tomato rice with crispy cheddar, are the union of Indian sophistication and American gumption, just like Priyanka Chopra and Nick Jonas. I think we can all agree he married up. Food writer and contributor to the New York Times, New Yorker, and Bon Appetit, Priya Krishna joins us to talk about all things Indianish. Welcome, Priya. Thank you. So you've been on this whirlwind book tour. How have people been receiving the book? I think it's been really exciting. Um, you know, I'm I wanted this book to be for other South Asians, hopefully a chance to, you know, reconnect with the food of their heritage. I feel like a lot of people who grew up like me didn't learn to cook Indian food and are now learning to cook it. And I'm excited that people who've never cooked Indian food before are finally cooking it again. That's really exciting. And it sounds like your mom actually didn't grow up learning how to cook Indian food either. No, her mom couldn't have cared less about cooking. It was totally a chore to her. So my mom immigrated to the U.S. in 1980, and all she knew how to make was roti. And your mom um, emerges from this book as sort of an amazing superhero. My mom is pretty awesome, but you contend that your mom is actually more awesome than my mom, (laughs) and in fact, all other moms. So make the case for why uh, you wrote this love letter to your mom. I mean... It's not just that my mom is an amazing cook. She is an amazing cook. She's an intuitive cook. She, her recipes balance accessibility and creativity. I mean, she has just done so much in her life. She became a software programmer and put herself through school, folding clothes at Sears. My mom was also a software programmer. (laughs) Amazing. to immigrant Asian moms. Um, She was doing this during a time when women were not supposed to be working. They were supposed to stay at home. This was especially true in Indian culture at the time. She has kind of never let pursuing her passions and her career become compromised by anything, whether it was having kids or, you know, dealing with 
you know, having a, a spouse who also worked, you know, she knows a lot about wine. She dresses fashionably. She's an amazing entertainer. She uh, hiked the Inca Trail with no experience and like hikes on a regular basis. I just feel like my mom is this like incredibly dogged individual who has just done everything that she's set out to do in her life. And I find it really remarkable. You also have some like quick tips from your mom that are not only about food. It's about um, how you don't need heels that are taller than two and a half inches. Anything else will give you bunions. Yes. And about statement jewelry as well. Yeah. No, these are these are things that my mom has taught me over time. Like one of the ones that I really take to heart is that as soon as you come home from work, change out of your work clothes into like sweatpants or your night clothes and you'll immediately feel more relaxed. Like no one wants to cook dinner wearing their work clothes. This this one I do every day. I'm curious about her reaction when you came to her and pitched her this book, which is basically a book of her recipes. What did she think? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's kind of funny in that I sold the book first and then I called her. Cool, being like, cool. Glad I, she was okay with it. <laughs> being like, I have sold this book of your recipes. Can you write 100 recipes? And my mom, like everything else in her life, she was like, She had a full-time job, but she was like, yeah, okay. And so she just sat down every night and she would write five recipes on her iPad and send them to me and she got them all done. So the recipes in this book aren't exactly Indian recipes. Some of them are actually quite far from what we might think of as Indian food. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're not like a a school of cooking. They're actually just your mom's recipes. So if you had to sort of distill her theory of delicious food down to a few bullet points. Like, how do you characterize the food that she makes? Yeah, I mean, actually, I asked my mom this exact same question, and she wrote down a flowchart of how she thinks about ingredients on a napkin, and I published that exact flowchart in this book, and it's called How to Make Any Indian Food, (laughs) according to my mother. I feel like that's the computer scientist in her coming out, where it's like, if this, then this. 100%. Like, it starts with some kind of spice combination heated up in an oil you add some kind of like an onion garlic ginger combination you add something more robust whether it's your meat your lentils your vegetables you let that cook until everything sort of mixes and mingles then you think about okay what are going to be my brighter elements you add your lime you add your yogurt and you're like what are going to be my textural elements you think about herbs you think about peanuts and that's kind of how she thinks about building dishes like sort of starting with one layer of flavor and then how can we build more layers on top of that how can we balance it out with brightness and acidity and then how can we add texture i really appreciate that flowchart and largely the introduction of your book because i feel like it provides the building blocks for people who maybe aren't that familiar with indian cuisine and americans i think through um, the work of of food pioneers in the 70s and 80s have absorbed how to master like basic Italian recipes, Mm -hmm. basic French recipes. You know, you're gonna start for Italian recipes with like olive oil, onion, garlic, maybe red pepper flake. And it's just become second nature to a lot of people. Like that's how we cook. Um, And more recently, like, you know, Thai food maybe. It's like fish sauce and sugar and Mm -hmm. lime juice. So having that sort of cheat sheet of, oh, if I want to make something Indian and flected, but put my own spin on it, this is where I can go, is super helpful, I think, for home Totally. I think that's a really good point. I feel like no one has distilled that for uh, a regular cook, even in in an accessible way. Totally. Yeah. 
you and I were both interviewed for an article uh, in Refinery29 mm-hmm. by Jasmine Malik Choa, mm-hmm. who just sort of talks about fusion and this concept of uh, immigrants, particularly Asian immigrants in America, putting their own spin on things. And in the article, you're quoted as saying that authentic is a hollow word. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about what you mean by that and how this book either does battle with authenticity or is it its own type of authentic? I mean, I'm an Indian person who wrote like an Indian cookbook and I get called out all the time for this pao bhaji recipe isn't correct. Your matar paneer isn't right. This is not how my mom used to make it. And are these people of Indian descent of coming for you? Other, or in, like, other okay. Indians. Uh-huh. So it's just proof that there's no such thing as authentic. What feels like the right way to make this dish to me is inevitably not going to be the right way to make that dish to someone else. There is no like one true version of anything. Cuisine has always been something that's really fluid. And so to say that my mom's tomato rice with crispy cheddar isn't authentic feels really empty to me because it's authentic to us because that's what we grew up eating. That is what my mom came up with when she had to feed us. It's just kind of a meaningless word. I'm curious about, I guess in some senses, it it is logical that you would have other people of South Asian descent being like, well, that's not authentic. Have you had any white people do that? Because that's my least favorite thing when I see on Twitter, some white dude who's like, well, I lived in China for five years and actually this isn't an authentic preparation. No, I actually haven't had any <laughs> white detractors. It's all other South Asians, which I feel totally fine about because that is the one thing all my friends told me. They are like, Indians are going to come after you. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, that's totally fine. But yeah, no white people, thankfully. So your mom immigrated to the U.S., ended up in Texas. Mm -hmm. Did she marry your dad in the U.S. or? In India. They had an arranged marriage. Okay. So they moved to Texas together, had you and your sister, and you guys are American kids who are clamoring for spaghetti and pizza. How did your mom adapt the food that she grew up eating to your tastes and to what was available in the supermarkets? Like, what are some substitutions that she would make? Yeah, I mean, like, she couldn't always get ghee, so she found olive oil, and she actually fell in love with olive oil and thought that its fruity flavor really worked nicely with Indian with Indian food. Um, she couldn't always, she didn't always have time to make roti, so she found the whole wheat tortillas at this regional grocer. Tortillas, man. A, yeah, it worked as a beautiful substitute. She discovered things she had never, ever heard of before, like rolling up a burrito or sourdough bread. And those things kind of figured really heavily into what we ate. Like when we would go on planes, my mom would, she like saw the way at burrito places, how they would roll up the burrito and tuck in the sides. So she did the exact same thing, but she used roti and then put sabzi inside and then would tuck them and then wrap them in foil, just like they did at our local burrito place. And then she would teach us to like, take it to tear it out one layer at a time because that's what she learned how to do. I also just feel like my mom was really excited by how multicultural Texas was. It really is a land of immigrants, especially Dallas. Like we were eating Mexican food one night, Thai food another night, Vietnamese food another night. You know, it was 
I think it was really exciting to her. You know, she she not only was eating food around Dallas, but she was traveling the world because she was a software engineer for the for the airline industry. So it wasn't just Texas, but kind of everywhere that she was being influenced. I love that you include that as well, that actually she's been influenced by, you know, food from all of her travels all over the world. Because I think people often have a limited idea about the types of cuisine that immigrants eat it's like of their adopted home or from totally their home or it seems like only white chefs are allowed to go to other countries and find inspiration and right. bring it back home right and somehow it's not okay when people of color do it so i just wanted to make a stand like yes my mom went to greece and was influenced by the food of food there that's right and that's we really fine. too yeah <laughs> um my grandparents actually came to texas as well but they went to houston in the 50s and at the time my mom says that they were the only chinese family in houston which is probably hyperbole but my grandparents or my grandfather in particular developed a real love for american food so i love this story about your mom like loving burritos that mm-hmm. were in dallas and later in life he was in san francisco where he lived and he went to a barbecue place and he loved texas barbecue he was like really obsessed with it there's some like you know spicy vinegary sweet familiarity to yeah. him right so he goes in this barbecue place and it turns out that it's a korean barbecue restaurant and he flips his oh, shit he's like man. this is america cook <laughs> american food is there any american food that your parents really um developed a, a love for well it's funny because i feel like well now i it feels weird calling it american food because like i consider indian food to be or the food in my book to be american food but I guess in terms of West traditionally Western dishes that they fell in love with, my dad just absolutely went head over heels for pizza. Like even like the crappy dollar slice, he just could not get enough of it. My dad was like, I thought that I could eat Indian food my whole life. And then he tried pizza and his life like, completely changed. Yeah. <laughs> we also fell in love with enchiladas, like cheesy enchiladas with like a side of rice and beans. We were really strong Tex-Mex lovers. We really loved a lot of American desserts, like chocolate cake and like the really like sickly sweet birthday cake with like the vanilla frosting. Sure. We loved those um, cookies you would buy at the store that had like the frosting this thick on top of them and came in those like styrofoam That's containers. That's ratio, like one yeah. to one cookie to frosting. <laughs> I think, and my sister and I, we like my parents didn't really allow us to have packaged snacks, but we were so intrigued by like the variety of packaged snacks that they had in the U.S., like, you know, the yogurt that had the Oreo bits that you could put inside. Sure. Or, you know, my parents were like, you know, they're crackers shaped like fish in America. What and, a land of yeah, opportunity exactly. and plenty. <laughs> were you allowed to have Lunchables as a kid or did your mom pack your lunches? I was only allowed to have Lunchables two times a year. Wow. On like specific occasions or yeah. you could you could play that card twice a year whenever you wanted? It was usually over the summer when I do summer camp. I was allowed, like, I could take Lunchables twice a year. And now looking back at it, I'm like, ew, those are so gross. Yeah, those, objectively like, disgusting. Like, but I at just the don't time, understand. I wanted the, like, the make-your-own-pizza ones yep, that's what I more wanted. badly than anything. Yeah. You write that you went to a predominantly white school. Mm-hmm. What did your peers say about your homemade lunches? Well, I did not bring Indian food to school because I was too embarrassed. I made my mom pack me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every single day for the 11 years that I was in school. And looking back, I'm 
So I feel so bad because my mom would lovingly make all this Indian food and she would pack it for herself and for my dad for work. And yeah, my sister and I just refused. I was just so happy to be eating my PB&J because it was like the, it was like some, even though I didn't look the same as everyone else, at least I ate the same lunch as everyone else. You also have a section towards the beginning of your book where you just shout out some Krishna family favorites, and one of them is Smucker's Strawberry Jam. Yes. So I see that PB&J has imprinted. And another one is actually ground nut butters from yes. Whole Foods. Yes. So that seems to be like a real cornerstone of your identity. It really was. It was funny because my mom was like, okay, if my daughter is going to force me to make a PB&J, I'm going to engineer the best possible peanut butter and jelly sandwich she tried different peanut butters she tried different jams preserves different kinds of bread and we basically came up with what we believe is the perfect pb and j with like uh this one variety of pepperidge farm bread that like dispense your own peanut butter from whole foods and smucker's strawberry preserves that has like the chunks of strawberries in it <laughs> that sounds like a winning recipe and i look forward to seeing that in your second cookbook um i want to talk a little bit about the design the cover of this so you've mm-hmm. got illustrations throughout by maria kamar, kamar. Yeah. yeah and i know her from instagram as hate copy mm-hmm. and she has a book out called trust no auntie but for people who aren't familiar with her can you talk a little bit about her style of illustration and why you asked her to collaborate on the book and specifically why you chose this for the cover as well yeah well so she does basically south asian pop art Pop art is usually a genre where you only see white people. So she's sort of subverting the genre by inserting South Asians in there. And not only is she inserting South Asians to pop art, but she sort of details these very uh, specific scenarios that are true to the Desi experience, like, you know, burning rotis or having overbearing parents or having gossiping aunties. And I just felt so seen in her illustrations. So I asked her to do illustrations featuring my family members for the cookbook. And when she gave me this illustration, I knew it belonged on the cover because basically my mother depicted as Rosie the Riveter. And instead of saying, you can do it, it's we can cook it. And she's clutching a spoon in her hand. And Rosie the Riveter is obviously this feminist symbol. So I think turning this feminist symbol into like my mom, this like Indian home cook, clutching a spoon kind of felt pretty perfect for the spirit of the book. One thing that I love about her illustrations too is that there's sort of this like Roy Lichtenstein-y comic book strip thing that she has going on. And generally I get the gist of whatever's happening, but often there's like a word in Hindi thrown in or, Mm -hmm. you know, something that I don't understand, but like, that's cool. It's not for me necessarily. Like I can get enough of it, but she doesn't try to like um, dumb it down. For, for her primary audience. Yeah, that's kind of what I love the most about it. Like certain things kind of just feel like inside jokes. Like there's one of her illustrations of a woman throwing a shoe at a man and it says, chutas get jutas. And that literally translate to, <laughs> translates to liars get shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And there's and no- it's so good. <laughs> yeah, and I love that there's like no asterisk, like yeah. explaining, if you get it, you get it. If not, like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. I feel like that's a thing that we're talking about a lot in food writing, too, where oftentimes if there is a word that is from a non-English language, um, it's put in italics and then described. And I've seen a lot of food writers of color making the case to, you know, we have Google. Like, you can just put that word there, and if somebody doesn't know what it means, that's fine. They can look it up. We shouldn't assume that 
the the baseline is is English and people who you know yeah. don't know about food that is not American. Yeah, totally. I specifically made a point to not italicize words like balchowl in my book because I want people to kind of read it all at once. It's sort of this quiet way of normalizing non-Western cuisines mm -hmm. in a Western cookbook. You write in your introduction that there's no curry chapter. Why is that? I hate the word curry, and I think we should all stop using it in the context of Indian cuisine. It was a word that was popularized by the British and basically used to reduce Indian food to this monolith, basically. And you, when you think of the word curry, you think of this brownish colored stew with like meat floating into it when that speaks to this one very 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 tiny slice of indian american cooking it kind of allowed people to reduce indian cooking to this like heavy stew that is not at all indicative of how most indians cook so as a result i feel like now people have people don't really know or understand the breadth or diversity present in indian cuisine and i feel like the minute that we move away from that word and just start calling dishes by their actual names, people will start to understand that diversity. They will start to understand that there's a difference between Gujarati cuisine and, you know, the cuisine of Uttar Pradesh where my family is from and the cuisine of Kerala. So that is my hope. That is why I wanted to abolish that word from the book. My producer Ross and I have gone back and forth over the sog paneer recipe <laughs> in your book. I haven't made it yet. I would love to make it, but it's contentious because you use feta instead of paneer. And my producer is saying, I don't know, like the textures are really different. Like it's a little bit crumblier, a little bit saltier. He's skeptical. So will you please sell Ross on why feta is actually potentially a superior cheese than yeah. paneer. I mean, honestly, that is the recipe that most everyone has made. That's the one that has kind of gone the most viral in a way that I didn't, hasn't, didn't expect. I thought people would be skeptical, as Ross was. But I'm telling <laughs> you, like, feta has this sort of, like, beautiful briny salty flavor that pairs really well with the brightness of the spices, the freshness of the spinach, which you're kind of just barely cooking. And it doesn't fall apart if you start with a block of feta and just cut it into cubes. You just gently fold it in and it just soaks up the spices and the spinach gravy so nicely. It's one of those things that, you know, I like sog paneer, but sog feta is just otherworldly. There you have it, Ross. Good luck. Talk to me a little bit about the virality of recipes like this feta paneer, like there's Simeon Nosrat's buttermilk chicken, there's Alison mm. Roman's like chocolate chip shortbread cookies. Did you feel pressure at all when you were writing a cookbook to have sort of a, a blockbuster Instagrammable recipe? No, and in fact, I figured sag feta would not be popular because it is not Instagrammable. It is like green gloop with like <laughs> right, white right. specks in it. But if you look at my tagged photos on Instagram, it's all tagged photos of green gloop. Like people are making it. They are photographing it in really photogenic ways. So no, I don't know. I didn't I didn't feel any pressure. It's also like you can never there is no way really to engineer a viral recipe, I think. People I think people think they know, but at the end of the day, you really never know what's going to take off. The best you can do is just offer up your best recipes and hope that people cook them. 
And you're a food writer, but you're not really like a recipe developer. What was mm -hmm. it like for you going through this experience of taking your mom's recipes and writing them down and making sure that they were accessible to home cooks? It was really terrifying. Like I knew I could tell the story portion, but I was more nervous about the recipe portion. Thankfully, my mom is a really gifted recipe writer. I guess there must be some kind of overlap between writing code and writing a recipe. Mm, I love that. <laughs> I lo I'm waiting for that think piece yeah. now. Great. <laughs> But, you know, it was definitely a skill that I had to learn. Thankfully, I have some really amazing friends. Um, my friend Erilyn offered to edit all of my recipes. I, other cookbook authors like Samin and Mary Frances Heck literally taught me how to write a recipe and told me the things that need to be there and would take a look at recipes and be like, you're missing this, you're missing this. Like, it's a very specific skill. And so I had a bunch of like very talented friends who basically taught me that. And then I uh, had them really rigorously tested. So I not only tested each and every single one and every single recipe a few times, but I basically put out a call on social media to anyone who wanted to test a recipe. And close to 200 people responded. And each recipe was tested by three amateur home cooks. And I got this big Google Doc of feedback and basically used that to figure out which recipes needed reworking. I cut a few recipes, but it was invaluable feedback. It was just everyday people, not professionals, telling me whether they would make this recipe again, what worked, what didn't work. You kind of get the, you get the sort of feedback like this ingredient was too expensive or I don't have a mortar and pestle, so I crushed my spices at the bottom of a whipped cream can and that worked fine. That's a <laughs> great like innovation. That. Yeah, I was like, I was so happy to get that feedback. So were there any examples of a recipe that you had written and you were like, got it, this is a perfectly written recipe, and then you found out that people were doing something very bizarre? Yeah, for example, with the mutter paneer, I just assume that when people see peas that they would assume like the little round things that you get, you know, in a, soup, in, a in a frozen packet. Shelling, shelling yeah, peas, like English shelled peas. peas. Yeah. yeah, but then I saw some pictures of people who had made the recipe and some people had used like sugar snap peas, like whole things in the pot. And obviously like, imagine those in mutter paneer. It just, it just right. doesn't it's work. It's like, you do you, but not what I had intended. Yeah. They're not, yeah, they're not like coating the spices in the, with getting coated the spices in the same way. And so just figuring out that you had to be really, really specific with your language. And if there was any chance that there was more than one variety of something, you had to specify exactly which variety you wanted. So your book is a hit. It's been on, you know, the best new cookbook lists everywhere. You've been on shows far more glamorous than this one. Um, what does your mom make of all this? Are people like recognizing her when she goes to the supermarket in Dallas? <laughs> First off, the show is super glam. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, my mom is so excited. She's thrilled. I mean, that said, she has a full-time job, so she doesn't have necessarily as much time to sort of bask in the excitement. I don't think she gets recognized at her local grocery store, but yeah, I mean, I think her and my dad, they were so confused when I said I wanted to go into food writing at first. And I think now that I've kind of brought them into the fold, I think they just, they're excited that they now kind of understand what I do because they're a, an active part of it. And I think for a parent, that's probably pretty pretty exciting to to actually understand what your kid does for a living every day. So yeah, I feel like it's kind of brought my parents and I 
closer together in that way. Well, it's a beautiful book and you can really see uh, the love that your family has for one another. And it's a, it's an homage to your mom and the relationship that you have, as well as the food that you grew up eating. So congratulations. I can't wait to cook from it. And thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And that's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to put feta in your sog. You can also review Woman 2BK on iTunes, and please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Woman 2BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 